the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground for three. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Uh, If you've heard the show before, you know the format. If you haven't heard the show before, hey, welcome. Now, the show is in, in two parts. The first part of the show, which is the shorter part ordinarily, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion. and But first, let, let me introduce our guest attorney for today, Nicole Donnelly. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Nicole, let me let me ask you something. How long have you been here at Connors and Sullivan? I am now a veteran. I've been here since June 29th of last year. I don't know if you call somebody who's here 10 months a veteran, but that's... With everything that we go through here at CNS, we absolutely are veterans after 10 months. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one thing, and I, I can tell you something right now. If you come in with a problem at Connors and Sullivan, we've seen it. You know, there's no, you can't make up a scenario that we haven't seen before. So, you know, and and I, we could go through some ridiculous scenarios, but we've, we've seen them all. Nicole, where'd you go to law school? I went to Toro Law out in Central Islip. Okay. And where do you live right now? Right now I live in Staten Island, but I'm born and raised in Brooklyn and I speak full Spanish. Not that you would know that by my last name, but it is true. I am fluent. How'd you learn Spanish? I'm half Colombian, so at home, my mom taught it to me. Otherwise, she would beat me if I did not know it. (laughs) (laughs) And you live in Staten Island? Yes, I do. I'm sorry, but... It's not as bad as everybody seems to think. I actually like it a lot. Isn't it the only borough that didn't get a travel alert for crime during the pandemic? That may be true, but I like to think of it because we didn't have any crime during the pandemic. That's No, that's what I'm saying. It's the only borough that didn't get a travel alert because of it. That's a very good thing. Yes, I agree. Okay, now we were just talking before we went on the show, and, and you have a very good point or question to make. Can you can tell us what you're talking about? Yes. So I always hear, what are the pros and cons of an attorney doing your will? Because people seem to think they could do it themselves, which I know they can, but you know, I think we should really go over what the pros and cons are. Yeah, well, you know, I mean... 
the 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 cons, I guess, of having an attorney do your will. You don't have to pay an attorney. Um, the pros are, you, you know, a will is is not as simple as you fill out a form and it's right. You know, you fill out the boxes in a form and you're okay. It doesn't quite work that way. A will is a writing that's witnessed by two people, and the two witnesses are have to be willing to testify in court that they signed a will in accordance with the laws of the state of New York. And it's not just filling out a form. And sometimes, so, listen, from an attorney's point of view, I would say some of our biggest fees came from people writing their own wills. Because, you know, sometimes a, a clause is interpreted. It has to go to court. The judge has to decide what the will says. One relative, another, and that could take years for the judge to decide what the person meant by that will. And a lot of times, when I see people, you know, do their own wills, a lot of times what they forget to do is put in the what ifs. You know, a lot of times you might say, uh, "Well, if something happens to me, I leave everything to." My okay, so far so good. But what if something happens to your son? What if you got grandchildren and they're underage? And you want to leave it to your grandchildren, but you want to appoint somebody to take care of your grandchildren. That is something, you know, the the what ifs are, are not, you know, are, are not really dealt with in a lot of these kits. And we had a case that uh, guy wrote his own will, used two witnesses from, uh, you know, off the street to sign it who had very common names. And he died and he had a $4 million estate. And then we had to try to find the witnesses because the gentleman also had relatives in Italy. And here's one of the things. When, you know, you think, oh, I got a will. It's going to go to the people I name in the will. It doesn't quite work that way. If you go through probate, and, of course, that's one of the things we can cover when we do some of our consultation is how to avoid probate, how to avoid going through court after you're gone. But if you have a will and you want to pass your assets through your will, you go through probate. And one of the problems about going through probate is everybody who's your next of kin by law has to officially receive a copy of your will. And if they don't consent to the will, it's going to go to court. It's going to be a court proceeding. It's going to be a lawsuit and it takes time and money. And let's say for the sake of argument, you're in that situation and you have two witnesses you pulled off the street to witness your will. And, you know, they say, ah, did you sign that will? Did you witness the will? Was it signed? Did he ask you to witness the will? Did he know he was witnessing the will? Was he of sound mind? And the witness says, I don't know. That's my signature. I don't know anything more. If you don't get truly unlucky and the witness says, that's not my signature because they don't want to get involved. And that's one of the problems that happens when you, 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 know, you just pull somebody off the street to witness a will. And then there's a problem with the will or even the problem being that all the relatives don't consent to the will. Then it goes to court, and the witness. some witnesses think they can get out of testifying by saying, I don't remember anything, I don't know anything, saying, yeah, that's my signature, but I don't remember what I was signing. Well, that only makes the court proceeding worse. Maybe the will is not valid, and it's going to drag on for years and years. And, you know, you don't want to go through probate anyway, but we certainly don't want to go through probate with witnesses who really don't know what they're doing. And, and I mean, it, it, if you work for Connors and Sullivan, you probably witnessed... 20 wills in the first month you were here. Is that true for you, would you say? 20 is a little short. I would say it was way more than 20. Well, that's true because you speak Spanish and you're more likely to be a witness than somebody who doesn't speak another language. Yes. Yeah. So, so what happens when the will goes to court? Like, what's the difference? Does the court look at the will that an attorney prepares differently than the will that a person by themselves prepare? 
yeah, there's a presumption if an attorney supervised the execution of the will, there's a presumption under the law that the will is good. So, you know, even if like, say for the sake of argument, the attorney died and he wasn't able to testify or she wasn't able to testify, there's still that presumption that will is a good will. And if you can't find the attorney as a witness to the will, again, you still have the presumption that the will w was signed properly. And, you, you know, a lot of times people do wills. Again, they don't name guardians for their minor children. Uh, they don't, like I said, don't take into account if somebody's going to contest the will and anybody who's your next of kin by law can contest your will. And that means, let's say, somebody's got a half-brother or sister they haven't seen in 20 or 30 years, and they're leaving everything to the sister that lived with them. Well, that half-brother or sister could contest the will and hold it. And then some people say, well, you'll never find him. Nobody will find him. We don't have to notify him. Yes, you do. And if you can't find, let's say, that missing half-brother, the court appoints a lawyer to protect the interests of the missing half-brother, and he can file objections to the will and, and drag it out through the courts for years and years, and, and the nature of the the system right now in New York, there's going to be a settlement. And not only that, with COVID, when I say years and years, I mean years and years because it could take a year or two just to get into the position where you you're, you're get to a hearing where you can talk to referees and try to settle the case. And, and if the will goes through probate and somebody objects to the will, there's usually a settlement. Now, just for the sake of our listeners, do you want to explain a little bit what the pandemic has done to the courts? It's it's slowed it down dramatically because the, the courts are not open. You drop papers in a box in the front of the courthouse, hope somebody gets them. They're backlogged. And, you know, things are not moving quickly. Things are not moving slowly. They're, they're moving less than slowly. So you always wanted to avoid probate. It was always, you know, bureaucracy and red tape. But right now, it's worse. You want to avoid probate. You put a plan together. If you have bank accounts, you have somebody else's name on it, you have a house, you have real estate, you put into a trust agreement, you avoid probate. Now, we're going to uh, go you know, to our second part of the show. Nicole, we're going to be talking about Daniel Boone. Do you know who Daniel Boone was? I mean, this is really short notice to ask me something like that. But he's an American figure. He has a wonderful book written about him. <laughs> that I am looking at and I have not had the time to go through the book because I'm so busy working for you all the time, <laughs> Mr. Connors. But I will get on reading this book and maybe we will pick up after that. You know, and actually preparing for this interview, I realized I really didn't know that much about Daniel Boone. Now, most of the people my age are a little bit older or just maybe a couple of years younger. Your vision of Daniel Boone is Fess Parker, who was on the TV series for six years. But if I saw that TV well, you wouldn't show, have seen it. you wouldn't have seen it. I mean, yeah, yeah, you can see it on MeTV or something every day. I think there's a Daniel Boone they show on some of the old channels. But, um, but two things I learned about Daniel Boone: one, he wasn't tall, which Fess Parker was like six foot six, who played Daniel Boone on TV, and so. Again, wasn't he wasn't short tall. either. He was he wasn't short. He was time. average height, but, but he the wasn't whole rest tall. of his family were very tall, and so he kind of he had a. I wouldn't say a Napoleon complex, but it did bother him a little bit. Which also means he didn't wear a coonskin cap because a coonskin cap makes you look shorter. And, of course, for six years, Fess Barker was wearing a coonskin cap on every single one of the Daniel Boone episodes. So, you know, those those are two things I learned. But I really learned that. I really didn't know that much about Daniel Boone. So if you haven't, if you don't know that much about Daniel Boone, 
We're going to be talking to Bob Drury. His book that he wrote with our old buddy Tom Clavin has been on the show I don't know how many times. Blood and Treasure, and you know, the life and times of Daniel Boone. Next up, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to listen to Kevin McCulley and then Bob Drury on Daniel Boone. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash F Melia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week, so honored to be able to present you an actual answer to an actual question posed to Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law. They are the number one premier firm dealing with estate care and elder law in the tri-state area. And Mike, this week's question comes from Mary. She said, I'm my mother's power of attorney. She wants to change her will, but is bedridden and can't go back to her lawyer's office. Since I am her power of attorney, can I have it changed for her? Mike Connors, what's the leading guidance there? Well, the short answer is no. You cannot change a will with a power of attorney. However, you know, in today's world, we can sign wills. We can, she can change her will by Zoom, where if she's bedridden, somebody gets a laptop next to her bed or whatever, and we can talk to her and then change her will through Zoom right now. So... You know, just because she's bedridden doesn't mean we can't conduct business. And, of course, that that's, uh, you know, great for right now for those people in nursing homes because you can't visit people in nursing homes. But if we get a social worker in a nursing home to set up a computer connection, then we can conduct business. Well, and my guess is, if this is Mary's issue, that there may be a number of other people that are uh, desiring to have something similar. Uh, so my, my, my guess is they just need to call your office and schedule the appointment to be able to make that happen? Yeah, it's not as hard as some people think. You know, you get a laptop, you get somebody there to to set up the laptop, and you conduct business just like you were in the office. 
All right. So, friends, here's the uh, number to uh, Mike Connor's uh, main office, and you can call and, and set up a Zoom meeting with them. You can also, by the way, uh, get a phone consultation from Mike's office on any of your questions about the state care and elder law. 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And if you have a question for Mike Connors, drop that at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. He'll be answering them on his show Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570 and FM 102.3 The Mission, and Sunday mornings starting at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, when uh, I was just thinking the other day when, when I heard about this book, Daniel Boone, and I was thinking, you know, I really don't know that much about Daniel Boone. It seems like most of what I know about Daniel Boone is from a TV series with, with Fess Barker. So let's try to learn a little bit more. Bob Drury, welcome to Connor's Corner. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Okay, well, what's the name Let of your me, book? A, uh, Blood and Treasure, Daniel Boone. The subtitle is Daniel Boone in the Fight for America's First Frontier. And let me dispel a couple of Disneyfications, Fess Parker myths okay. before we even go any further. <laughs> well, it's got to be an old guy like me. No, My son wouldn't know who Fess Parker was. You know, I, I say this when I give my Zoom presentations, and I could see half the people nodding their heads and half the people saying, Fess Parker? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but anyway, the first one is Daniel Boone did not die at the Alamo. That was Dave Crockett. <laughs> well, that that <laughs> confused a lot of us a little bit younger because, you know, he, he wore the same hat and, you know, both, well, no, both shows. Well, no, that's the second myth, Mike. Right? That is the second myth. Daniel Boone, I mean, he was an average, he had average height for the year. He was 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, he was a stout man. He was a strong man. But all his cousins on his mother's Welsh side for the era were kind of giants. They were 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", and he always felt that he was short. And so he hated a coonskin cap. Oh, because wow. it, He thought it made him look shorter. So that's, once again, that's Crockett with the coonskin cap. That's Crockett at the Alamo, not Boone. So there, we'll blame Walt Disney for that, for, for casting <laughs> Fess Parker as both men on the TV series. <laughs> well, Fess Parker made a lot of money, so <laughs> I think he's ahead of the game, or he was ahead of the hey, game. Hey, listen, I think, I think I grew up in the late 50s. I probably had a coonskin cap. You know, all the kids were wearing them that in those days, the second and third and fourth grade. So anyway, so ask the lawyer. What is Daniel Boone going to ask the lawyer, or what is the lawyer going to ask me about Daniel Boone? Well, we spent time. That's the Connors Quarter segment. We spent time on history 
so forth. So who was Daniel Boone? Well, let me start, let me back up just a little bit and maybe maybe shock you a little bit, but when my co-author, Tom Clavin, and I first began the concept or first started digging into the research for the concept. And I just want to interrupt you slightly. Tom's been on our show many times talking about the Old West. Uh, there you go, his yeah. trilogy. Wonderful, wonderful okay. gunfighter trilogy. Anyway, Mike, we had no, we had, we weren't, Boone was the furthest thing we thought we'd be writing about. He was totally off our radar. We wanted to write a biography of the era. In fact, we think we have written a biography of the era. And at first, like in our book, The Heart of Everything That Is, we let's tell this story through the eyes of a Native American. And so we looked into Pontiac, Pontiac's Rebellion. We looked into Tecumseh. We looked into Indians that most people have never heard of, uh, Cornstalk, uh, Little Turtle. But it just so happened that as we got deeper and deeper into our research, everything that happened in the 18th century, Daniel Boone or someone in his family was there. I mean, literally, when we're talking, when William Penn was the only colonial governor to try to treat fairly with the Native Americans, standing right by his side was George Boone, Daniel's grandfather, who was also a Quaker. When the white settlers hemmed in along the eastern seaboard, started to take their first tentative steps into the wilderness, into the borderlands, down to uh, the, uh, the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, the Blue Ridge in North Carolina, the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. It was Daniel Boone's father, Squire Boone, who led one of the first wagon trains. By the way, Daniel was 16 years old at the time, and he was already such an adept woodsman that he was the one that would go out and get the game. He supplied the food for the entire wagon train. During the French and Indian War, Braddock's folly, when the English General Braddock tried to evict the French from Fort Duquesne, which eventually became Fort Pitt and is now Pittsburgh, and an entire English army was almost wiped out. Daniel Boone was a teamster on that on that expedition, on that engagement. He was almost killed right next to, he was 20 years old, he and the 23-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Militiaman George Washington were very nearly killed on that expedition. When we, when, when we had various Indian wars before the American Revolution, Daniel Boone was in the middle of it all, going through the Cumberland Gap. It was Now, Daniel Boone, of course, did not discover the Cumberland Gap. The Cumberland Gap had been used by Native Americans for centuries. But he's the one that widened it. He's the one that publicized it. He's the one that started leading settlers and pioneers through the gap and into what was then, I mean, it may as well, may as well have been marked on maps as here be dragons. Nobody <laughs> knew what was on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains. And what really shocked us was what a big role Boone played in the American Revolution. I mean, I had a vague idea that Boonesboro, the the town he founded in Kentucky had something to do with the American Revolution. But I had no idea that in a last gasp effort, after the fighting did not go well for the British in the Northeast, driven out of Boston, uh, John, John, General Burgoyne's army captured at Saratoga. By the way, the General Burgoyne had the coolest nickname, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne. And then <laughs> Washington wipes out General Clinton at the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse. The entire war kind of shifts to the south. And the plan was Cornwallis was going to land his armies on the east coast. And uh, Governor Hamilton, the, the royal governor, 
Henry Hamilton at Fort Detroit was going to raise an Anglo-Canadian Indian army and attack from the West. And Washington knew he could not win a war on two fronts. But what happened? They get to Kentucky. Daniel Boone and the settlers of Boonesboro turns back that Anglo-Indian army, has them scurrying back across the Ohio River, giving Washington the chance to take down Cornwallis at Yorktown. So finally, Tom and I said, listen, as much as we want to, to write this book from the perspective of a Native American, it's got to be Boone. Boone was everywhere. So when you asked me before about the myths of Daniel Boone, yes, there have been a lot. We mentioned, you know, the coonskin cap and Davy Crockett, the confusion. But there's a kernel of truth to everything Boone did. I mean, he was America's premier pathfinder. And here's it, it comes full circle. Right now, Mike, out of the 330-odd million Americans, 46 million of them can say that their ancestors came through the Cumberland Gap, which is what Daniel Boone, of course, popularized. Now, I will say one thing. Daniel Boone went to his grave at a very, very old age, by the way. He lived to be 85 years old. He didn't die until 1820, which was very out of character for the era. But he went to his grave detesting the fact that he was known as America's premier Indian fighter. He did not want to, and granted, he fought a lot of Indians and he killed a lot of Indians, but he killed them in wars. He wasn't one of these guys. He wasn't Cotton Mather preaching from his Boston pulpit to purge the continent of the red sons of Satan. He wasn't even a luminary like Thomas Jefferson, who put forth the proposal to exterminate the savages and the heathens between the East Coast and the Mississippi River. Daniel Boone, he liked the Indians when he wasn't having to fight them. He, uh, he saw things from their perspective. I mean, Cotton Mather would have been spinning in his grave had he known that Boone told his first biographer, a school teacher named John Filson, when he was talking about it, he said, I'm not, I'm not a real religious man, but I've held in his greatest esteem the Indian's great spirit as I do any Christian God. I mean, the, the, the ethos then was see an Indian, shoot an Indian. That was not Boone. Boone came to understand the Indian. Perhaps naively, he hoped something could be worked out, some accommodation could be worked out between white settlers and the indigenous people who had occupied these lands for millennia. But I think deep down in his heart, he knew it was over. He knew, as he put it once again to Filson, that this was a fight for blood and treasure. That's where we got our title. And the blood that was spilled, and maybe I better warn your listeners, Mike, we had a, oh, it was a Washington page, might have been this week in the Wall Street Journal. We got a great review from the book, but at the end, the reviewer said, I just want to warn my readers that this book is not for the faint of heart. And I cannot disagree with his opinion. I mean, we opened the book with Daniel Boone's oldest son, James Boone, 16 years old, bleeding out from a gut shot. He's been ambushed by a party of Cherokee, Shawnee, and Delaware. And as he's bleeding out, as he's dying, the leader of the war party, an Indian named Big Jim, is plucking, just gratuitously plucking out his fingernails and his toenails before he scalps them and bashes in his head. And then years and years later, towards the end of the book, in one of Daniel Boone's last Indian fights, he's holding his son Israel, who's got a musket ball in his heart, gouts of blood are spuming out all over Boone's clothes as he says goodbye to his second son. In between as one historian called it, it's just a whirlwind of blood and carnage. And we're talking both sides. The, I mean, 
for every white infant that was scalped, there were Indian villages that were just wiped out, men, women, and child. Uh, it was, you know, I was a war correspondent for 20 years, and I've been to some hellscapes. I, I mean, I was shot in Afghanistan. I took shrapnel in Sarajevo. I've been to Darfur, Iraq. At least in Belfast, you can get a beer at the end of the day. <laughs> but, but, uh, but I tell you what, the violence that permeated this era I mean, I knew, of course, we all know that from the moment that European emigrants set foot on the fatal shores of North America, that there was going to be blood in combat for land. I mean, it was no coincidence that the Jamestown settlers uh, chose John Smith and the the pilgrims of Plymouth Rock chose Miles Standish, both soldiers of fortune, as their expeditionary leaders. But I just did not realize how deep the carnage went until we really started researching this book. Now I've just been talking too long, and I apologize. Go ahead. You probably have another question for me. Well, I d- yeah, Bob, let me, let me ask you something. Kentucky, what was it, 17? When, when did he go over through the Cumberland Gap? What early, year? 17, early 1700s. I mean, early, sorry, early 1770s. Right. In and fact, what was it like then, Kentucky? It was just, well, uh, Kentucky, the Indians called it, the land of game. Uh, it was almost like a game preserve. All the surrounding tribes, the Miami to the west, who were kind of in what Indiana is today, the Shawnee to the north, who were in Ohio, the Cherokee to the south, who were on the borders of Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, the Kickapoo, the Delaware, they had all more or less come to an agreement. No one is settling Kentucky. There's just too much game. It is going to be our hunting preserve. And if any Indian tribe did try to settle the land, I mean, it was so lush. It was so bountiful, teeming with deer skins, with beaver pelts, with these pristine rivers. Of course, as soon as the white people saw this, they said, hey, we're going to dig up this land. We're going to start planting corn. We're going to start planting tobacco. Look at this. Look at this bluegrass. I mean, and of course, that's what led to all the wars. So it was just... As Boone called it, it was an Eden that no one, no white man thought existed on earth. So that's, even though the fighting spread into Ohio, into Indiana, into Wisconsin, into Illinois, it was, Kentucky was the spark that flamed the Indian Wars of the 18th centuries. Everybody wanted Kentucky. It was just so beautiful. And you mentioned again Boonesboro, which... You know, I'm not aware of that. How key it was to the the American fight for independence. Ah, I, well, that's what. As I said, Tom and I weren't that shocked by uh, the violence, the carnage. I mean, we knew we were a little bit shocked by how deeply it went. But what did shock us was what a great role, what a big role Boone played in the American Revolution. I mean, let's if Washington had been stuck in a vise between Cornwallis's redcoats moving west from the coast, and Henry Hamilton's Redcoats, Canadians, and an Indian army of, of a thousand moving east. The plan was, we'll roll through Kentucky. There's a few sparse outposts, Boonesboro being the largest of them. Then we'll take Fort Pitt, which the British had abandoned and was now occupied by the Americans. And then we'll just roll south. We'll roll up on George Washington's flank, and this little rebellion of theirs will be all over. So when Boone actually held out, and they they besieged Kentucky for a week. And finally, the Indians took so many casualties, they just went to the British saying, we're done. You promised us booty. You promised us loot. 
You promised a speck. You promised we could roll through this cantique, as they called it. And and these white settlers, with their long rifles, they're just blowing us to pieces. We're not fighting anymore. And there weren't enough British troops to complete the second half of the vise that Cornwallis had envisioned. So uh, that did shock us a little bit, too. It also shocked us. I mean, what a bad businessman Daniel Boone was. <laughs> Uh, we, we, before we went on air, we talked about this a little bit when you said ask the lawyer, because he was basically, he abandoned the country. He was run out of the country. There was so many writs out for him, so many arrest warrants out for him because he was such a bad land speculator. He would survey land and think that he had been gifted it, and he, then he would sell it, and he realized he didn't pay taxes on it. So later in life, he, he, there were sheriffs all over the the, the middle Atlantic states with warrants out for Daniel Boone. And he was pretty bitter about it. He said, oh, after all I've done for this country, that's the treasure in our blood and treasure title. After I have opened up this country to Euro-American settlers or American settlers by this point, you're going to throw me in jail? You're going to put me in a debtor, debtor's prison? I don't think so. So at the same time, fortuitously for him, uh, the Spaniards still controlled Missouri west of the Mississippi. This was before they ceded it to Napoleon, who, of course, sold it to Thomas Jefferson. So the Spaniards were worried about the British in Canada moving in on their turf. It's like a gang war, moving in on their turf. So they put out a call to all Americans. If you will give you free plots of land west of the Mississippi, all you have to do is convert to Catholicism, because, of course, uh, Spain was a Catholic country at the time. But when they heard through their sources that Daniel Boone was unhappy and pretty much on the run from the law, they made the exception for him. They put out representatives, they found them, and they said, listen, come to Missouri. You don't even have to convert. Whatever your religion is, you can keep it that way. But if you lead a wagon train of settlers into Missouri, and we could spread the word that the great renowned Daniel Boone is settling the Missouri territory, they're going to be piling in here. And they did. So uh, that's... There's a bit of irony to Daniel Boone's last years in that that he was on the run. And finally, the irony on top of the irony is that the Spaniards had granted him a large farmstead. But then when the Span when the Spaniards lost to Napoleon in Europe and Napoleon took over what was then the Louisiana territory, Boone lost all his all his land. He was constantly losing all his land. And but he was fairly philosophical about it. He was a he was a humorous and philosophical guy. I know we're running long, but I'll tell you one story that kind of sums up Boone and his equanimity. He's off fighting one of the many Indian wars. This was the Cherokee Wars, this one was called. And after about oh, nine, ten months, they've wiped out these Cherokee villages. They're on their way back east. He's living in North Carolina at the time. And he says to the commander, listen, um, I want to take a hunting party. I've never seen this eastern Tennessee. I want to scope it out. And and the commander says, sure. So he's gone for over a year. And he finally returns to the Yadkin Valley in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains. And his wife, Rebecca, and they were married for 56 years. His wife, Rebecca, is suckling an infant daughter. So Daniel, like, you know, he was a lettered man. He could do his arithmetic. And he said, nine months? I've been gone for over a year. What's, so what's going on here, Rebecca? So Rebecca finally admits she thought he was dead. She thought he had been killed in the Cherokee Wars, and Daniel Boone had a brother, Nettie, younger brother, Ned Boone, and he looked so much like Daniel, they could have been twins, and she admits to him, listen, I thought you were dead, I'm a, a widow, 
on the borderlands. I've got three young children, and Ned comforted me, and one thing led to another, and here's little Jemima. She's your, your, your adopted daughter now. So Daniel looks at it, and he says, you know, I married a flesh-and-blood woman. I didn't marry a portrait of a saint. And he confesses to Rebecca that he's had his own dalliances in the frontier with Indian maidens. And finally he says, so, Nettie's the father, eh? And he rubs his chin. He said, ah, so much the better. It's all in the family. And for the rest of his life, he treated Jemima as his own daughter. He never held any animus towards Nettie, who, by the way, Daniel Boone and Nettie were coming back from yet another Indian war. They broke off to hunt, and a Shawnee, hunting, a Shawnee war party uh, Boone was off in the bush killing a bear. He hears gunshots. He rushes back, and the Shawnees are kneeling over Nettie. They've killed him, and they're cutting off his head because they think it's Daniel Boone. That's how much they looked alike. They want to bring the head back to the village. Say, we killed the great Daniel Boone. So, of course, Boone fights those Indians. Gets it never recovers his brother's head, but he does recover his brother's body and buries it. And just... Uh, it, it, it was just a winding road researching writing this book, Mike. It just, uh, I'm very pleased with the way it came out, and uh, I think from it only the pub date was Tuesday, and so far uh, all indications from our publisher is that it's doing rather well. Very good. Now let me ask you something. How many children did Daniel Boone have? Okay, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six died in infancy. Seven, eight, nine. And, uh, in fact, his last child was born in the same week that his first two grandchildren were born. So it was, uh, it was a second family, let's put it that way. And, uh, and they all stuck together. They were, it was clannish. All those settlers that had the, the, the cojones to cross the Appalachians, or as they say down there, the Appalachians, to cross and settle this new land teeming with wolves and bears and savages and heathens. They were a cut. The East Coast Americans looked at the Western Americans as just a step above the Indians. You know, they're clannish. They, we could barely understand what they're saying. And okay, they might not be Indians, but they're only a step above. And that only reinforced the feeling among the settlers as we're in this, we're on our own. Whether we're here in Boonesboro in Kentucky or Harrodsburg in Kentucky. Ain't nobody come to help us. Maybe with some relatives back in Virginia or North Carolina, if we really get in trouble, we can call on them for help. But pretty much we're forging a new country on our own. And uh, rightly or wrongly, I think that's a streak that still remains throughout the American character to this day. Now, I think, you know, at the end of the book, you're talking about a commentary by a Chinese military officer. And can you explain that? I mean... How long was the war between, you know, the European-Americans and the Native Americans? Well, well, let me put it the way he put it. It was a, it was a general from the, uh, uh, the Chinese People's Army, the, the Communist Army, of course. And he was giving a lecture at the American War College. And at one point he said, well, of course, as you are well aware, the United States has undoubtedly fought the longest recorded war in history. And the American officers in the audience are like, astounded. What's this guy talking about, huh? And there's a lot of historians there. And they're thinking, you know, and this was several years ago, so we had not yet been in Afghanistan for 20 years. We were maybe in our 14th or 15th year. And they're saying, okay, we've been in Afghanistan 14 years, but we've never had anything like 
Europe's bloody 30 years war, not to mention its 100 years war. And this one uh, historian, Peter Mislowski, a military historian, he wrote, that, you know, that's a dubious assertion. What's this guy talking about? And in the next breath, the, the uh, Chinese general says, of course I'm talking about your 300-year war against America's indigenous people, the Native Americans. And uh, even Maslowski came about in a book that he wrote. He said, European Amer- Euro-Americans did wage, in fact, a protracted war to conquer Indian nations in order to acquire their land and its resources. And it's, it's very similar to what Francis Jennings, an earlier historian, had written. Uh, let me make sure I get this straight. I'm reading. Europeans did not conquer wilderness. They conquered Indians. They did not discover America. They invaded it. And that's what the Chinese general was talking about. Sure, there might have been, uh, you know, uh, villages in Afghanistan or on the Mongol steppes that fought with each other for, uh, you know, centuries. But never in recorded history has a war gone on for 300 years as the war did between the American, first the European Americans, first the Europeans, then the European Americans, then the Americans and the indigenous people of the North American continent. Would Daniel Boone have looked at it as one war if he would have mentioned, you know, conflict against the Cherokees or conflict against the Shawnees or whatever? I don't think he had that big picture in him. You got to remember, we're talking about the 1700s. What he did see was the future. As I mentioned before, he saw the Indians. Now it grates on our 21st century politically correct ears to hear him say something like, we just have to teach the Indians to become more white. And, but what he meant by that was, these are uh, a people, these are a philosophic, they're, they're a cultural people. They have their own religion, they have their own philosophy. If we can learn to get along with them, and when he was a cat, he was captured by the Shawnee, and he spent four months in the Shawnee town, and he was adopted by a Shawnee head warrior. And it was a, it was kind of a crazy, Adoption to the Indians was a little bit different than we think of it. I mean, Boone at this time was in his mid-40s, and the the warrior who adopted him was only in his mid-50s. But that's how much that they that Boone respected them, and they respected Boone, that he allowed himself to become adopted. And he would sit every night, and he learned the, the Shawnee language, and he would talk to uh, this warrior, uh, Black Horse, and, he, and, they, and they would say, what can we do to save our lands? And because Boone knew, Boone knew you don't, A, you don't have the outward, you don't have the guns and the muskets and the long knives, and B, your culture has already been debilitated because these people who had been here for millennia, they had never built up any kind of immunity to smallpox, to measles, to mumps, to alcoholism. He said, one way or another, we're going to get you unless you become more like us. You have to, you know, stop being a a buffalo hunters. And believe it or not, buffalo were ranging east of the Mississippi then. You have to stop being buffalo hunters, and you have to have, you have to start bringing in cattle herds. And let me teach you how to use a loom. And, of course, the Indians were not going for this at all, saying, no, no, this is not our culture. That's your culture. Uh, Never the twain shall meet. And so I think that's what that... uh, Chinese general meant by that, but if you're asking, did Boone Boone saw the big picture, but I don't saw I don't think he saw the Chinese general's big picture. Now, why do you think what 
tell the readers why why do you think they should learn about Daniel Boone? Isn't he just like hey, the Indian fighter from the you know no, long ago? I think, I think I think he was. I mean, there are other frontiersmen not as well known. Simon Kenton springs to mind. James Harrod springs to mind. But they did not roam as far and as wide and explore as Daniel Boone did. If you, for, for no matter what side of the Native American question you were on, whether you think that this country was stolen in entirety from the Native Americans, or whether you think to the victor belongs the spoils, Daniel Boone roamed further and wider than any American pathfinder. I'd say in the history of the United States. I mean, maybe you might want to throw Neil Armstrong in there who got to the moon. <laughs> but uh, but Daniel Boone, as I said in, in the very beginning of our conversation, the myths that sprung up around Daniel Boone all had a kernel of truth. And we're not talking fictional character like Johnny Appleseed or Paul Bunyan or John Henry. We're talking about a flesh and blood man who actually performed the feats that we kind of have a vague idea of today, you know, Disneyfication of Daniel Boone has really distorted our idea of him. But 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 this guy was a I can't swear on your on your show, but I think you knew what I was going to say. He was a bad. He was a badass dude. All right. The name of the book is Blood and Treasure. The authors. Oh, I'm sorry. Blood and Treasure. Daniel Boone and the fight for America's first frontier. The authors, Bob Drury and Tom Clavin. Bob Drury, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Hey, Mike, thanks. Anytime. Good luck to you. Thank you. someone who's been touched by cancer it's the second leading cause of death and it took the life of my father john wayne but even in his final days he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer his courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big c as my dad called it so we did something about it and founded the john wayne cancer institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. 
Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. And my son, Michael, again. Hello, everyone. You know, like talking about Daniel Boone, you know, I was thinking about Fess Parker because to a lot of us, Daniel Boone, Fess Parker is Daniel Boone. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, Beth, we were just talking the other day, we were watching them where Fess Parker, you know, know, that was where he got his big break or from that movie. He got his big, big break. Oh, he was great in that. I mean, he was talented. If you oh, haven't, if y'all haven't seen them, that's one of those very good, you know, 50s sci-fi movies. I mean, it's a lot Absolutely. of fun. The, you know, the, that was a great time for just sci-fi concepts making it into film. You've got them, The Thing from Another World, Godzilla. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Now, I know out. some of you out there saying, wait, when Fess Parker wasn't in them, it was James Arness. And that was the thing. Walt ah. Disney was watching them to see James Arness because he was thinking about making James Arness Davy Crockett. But he saw Fess Parker in a smaller role and was so impressed by Fess Parker in the smaller role, he became Davy, Davy Crockett. Then he did a lot of movies for Disney. Then he did a few Hollywood movies in between. And then he went back to Disney to, you know, do the Daniel Boone series, which I, I have to admit is one of my favorite series, you know, during right. that time period. Because it, it was American history. It was an American hero. And... <laughs> You know, Fess Parker was a very interesting actor. I really do think he was a better actor than he got credit for. And my understanding is he ended up he ended up a very successful businessman after his acting career was over. So, you That's know, good. rest in peace, Fess Parker, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett. But I'll tell you something, it, it burst my bubble to find out that Daniel Boone did not wear a coonskin cap. I have a picture of of Mr. Connors when he's like three years old with a little coonskin cap. But that was Davy Crockett. That was not Daniel Boone. It doesn't matter. Either one. You were wearing that coonskin cap with pride. Now, again, people keep asking me about the seminars. And we've we've had some office meetings on it. And we think, you know, what our sainted mayor, Mr. de Blasio, saying New York City is going to be open on July 1st. I'm trying not to laugh too hard. Um, We are are planning to to do our seminars now, the end of July, the exact places and dates. We're going to be working on that. But the seminars, I hope, will be back in July. We'll have email blasts on it. We'll announce it on the show. Uh, So, you know, keep in touch. And we'll we'll be doing our seminars. The end of July is not as far as uh, you may think. It's May already. So Yeah. yeah. 
And Michael, in the meanwhile, where can they get our seminars on YouTube? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, if you want to check out our video seminar, you go to YouTube.com and you search up Connors and Sullivan Video Seminar. It's just that simple. Go to YouTube.com, hit the search bar, and search Connors and Sullivan Video Seminar. It should be the first thing that comes up on your search. And also, where do they ask us questions, the email questions that we answer during the show? If you want to get an email question to us, you send it to AskMikeConnors. That's Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, AskMikeConnors at gmail.com. Okay, so thank you for listening to the show. I hope you learned something about Daniel Boone. I know I learned a, a fair amount about Daniel Boone that I didn't know. And hopefully we'll be back here next week at the same time and stations. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye, everybody. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.